Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today, I'm speaking to professors Hans Martin Kramer and Julian Strube about their edited volume, Theosophy Across Boundaries, Transcultural and Interdisciplinary Perspectives on a Modern Esoteric Movement. It was published by State University of New York Press in 2020. Dr. Kramer is a professor of Japanese studies at the Heidelberg University, while Dr. Strube is assistant professor in religious studies at the University of Vienna. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies to both of you. So our first question is always biographical. I was wondering if you two could begin by telling us a little bit about yourselves. Where did you grow up and how did you end up working on this project together? All right. Thanks, uh, Sami, for having us on uh, this New Books in South Asian Studies program. Um, my biography is a bit boring in a way. I'm, I'm, uh, I was born in Germany. I'm, I'm a German. I've basically almost always lived in Germany, except for uh, longer stints, uh, stays abroad in the U.S. and in Japan. Um, since I am in Japanese studies, of course, I've spent uh, three or four years taking everything together in Japan. Um, I've always been interested in, in religion. I have uh, studied at uh, a Jesuit university in, in Japan and have somehow through that have gotten into religion and politics. And so uh, topics like theosophy, uh, religious movements, uh, especially those with, with an Asian context, with an Asian element have, have always been of interest to me. Uh, I've gotten a bit more into religion about 10 years ago, more professionally. And um, I was uh, to explain a bit how this how this book uh, emerged, I was uh, part of a five or six person research group here at Heidelberg University uh, that looked at <clears throat> globalization of religion in the 19th century from various regional perspectives, Europe, South Asia, East Asia. And uh, we had basically some money left for a conference, actually quite a bit of money for a larger conference. And we were wondering what would be a good topic that could would tie us all together. And we had a bit of difficulties finding something because we're working on slightly different topics. But then we kind of found out that we were all interested or working on, to some degree, theosophy, although no, not one of us was really mainly doing theosophy. We, there was no real bona fide theosophy expert among us. But we kind of found that that may be actually a good idea to have a conference on theosophy, looking from the margins, if you will. And uh, I think that's translated to a degree into the book uh, you mentioned the title, it's Theosophy Across Boundaries. And so one of those boundaries is actually that none of the people originally involved with this was a, a theosophy expert, sort of in the narrow sense, but we're looking a bit from outside. Uh, we've also come across it and deal with it. And I think that's part of the book and hopefully also the appeal of the book. Yeah, uh, my biography is in a way even more boring. I am actually from Heidelberg. I'm one of the very rare indigenous species that is actually from there. It's, you know, Heidelberg being a university town, very international, very few natives. So uh, I studied most of my my time in, in Heidelberg. I am a religious studies guy. I also uh, studied history and at times a bit of philosophy. But I always focused on the relationship between religion and politics, and especially what may be subsumed under that rubric of esotericism. Uh, for that, I have looked at context ranging from Völkisch movements in the 19th century via National Socialism uh, up 
to contemporary present day neo-Nazism, but also at uh, socialist currents, especially in the, the early 19th century. That's, that's what my dissertation was about. And I always tried to take a new shot at, at the history of both religion and politics. For instance, uh, in my dissertation, I wanted to show that currents such as spiritualism and occultism developed out of a specific socialist context. And when I did my research on all that, theosophy was always consistently very prominent, at least since the 1880s. I was always fascinated by connections beyond Europe through theosophy, and this is why I learned Bengali and some Sanskrit after my dissertation. So during the time when theosophy across boundaries was put together, I was diving into my research on the context of Bengal in the 19th and 20th century. I was fortunate enough to land a small gig at the Cluster of Excellence uh, Asia and Europe at Heidelberg, and uh, I was tasked with the formal administration of the conference, out of which that volume developed. My goal was really a combination of approaches from religious studies, global history, and South Asian studies, for which theosophy is really, really an exceptionally fascinating and instructive example that really shows how fruitful global historical perspectives on such a topic, theosophy, esotericism, and religion more broadly are. Fascinating. Thank you so much. And uh, Professor Kramer, we've already spoken before, so I knew about your work and I've obviously, obviously read your work before. So it was fascinating to hear, uh, Professor Strube, your dissertation work. I, I would love to read uh, what comes out of that, perhaps in uh, towards the end of the discussion, maybe we can get into uh, what you're working on next. And I'm assuming there's something related to your uh, really interesting dissertation there. Um, so before we get into the discussion uh, on this book, uh, I just want to tell the listeners that I've decided to ask broad questions about theosophy based on the book rather than go chapter by chapter. Um, I hope this means that this interview will be helpful for both those who are experts in theosophy as well as those who know very little about the movement uh, and its history. So uh, perhaps now we can begin by talking about what theosophy or the theosophical movement is, when and where does it emerge, who are some of the major figures, and what are some of the fundamental principles of theosophy? The Theosophical Society proper was founded in 1875 in New York. It really was quite an international and diverse bunch of people who took the initiative for that. But there are some leading figures, most notably Helena Petrovna Blavatsky and Henry Steele Alcott. Also, the American uh, William Grant Judge was very much involved in that. We are talking about basically people with mostly spiritualist backgrounds. Uh, they really were looking into paranormal phenomena, phenomena, as you would call it today, and interested in things esoteric. More, more, more particularly into esoteric knowledge, literally hidden secret knowledge that is only accessible to the initiate, people who have been initiated in how to decrypt, how to understand certain traditions. They aimed at a th synthesis of religion, science, and philosophy and wanted to establish a universal brotherhood of humanity. So we are dealing here with a certain religious universalism 
that became enmeshed very quickly in nationalist anti-colonial developments and that aimed at the revival of a supposed ancient wisdom that was considered Aryan in particular. Aryan not in the sense that the Nazis would later use, later, later use it, like this, this very uh, folkish sense of Aryan, but an understanding of Aryan that was first and foremost coined by Orientalist scholarship, where the relationship between language, religion, and race is very ambiguous and really configured uh, the, the ambiguity of the theosophical race concepts. But the very peculiar, peculiar thing about the, the theosophical society in contrast to contemporary developments and many Orientalist scholars, for instance, was that they relocated physically to India. They set up their headquarters there. We are really looking at a truly global network that was not simply a Western movement or one that exported Western knowledge into the world, but inside within that movement we can also observe, observe the major role of those beyond the so-called west i i would say that our volume aimed uh, at decentering the history of theosophy and by extension that of religion since the 19th century great thank you that's a really great overview um and really helpful thank you um so now could you uh give us a brief overview of the historiography on theosophy and what some of the major contributions of this edited volume are. Yeah, I think Julian has already uh, hinted at a few of the sort of common conceptions of theosophy in the historiography and already uh, also mentioned what we think we, we do differently um, and how we then co contribute to the field. So traditionally, it's been, uh, it's been a field like many, um, many facets of religion, actually, religious studies and certainly esoteric studies, that's been dominated by stakeholders. That's certainly one, one aspect to highlight. Um, it's been frequently used as a forerunner of the contemporary fascination with Hinduism, Buddhism, up to yoga, alternative lifestyles. So it's been part of that, that kind of history. Um, it's also, if, if its global aspect has been, has been uh, considered, it's been seen as one of the forces that help to globalize Western ideas in Asia. So it's a fairly, in that sense, it has been uh, interpreted in a fairly standard Orientalist framework, uh, more narrowly the framework of Western esoteric studies or Western esotericism. Um, theosophy as part of the Orientalist imagina imagination for which European identities were shaped by, you know, selfing, process of selfing and othering. Um, now, What's been uh, overlooked until fairly recently, mostly overlooked, and what we want to highlight uh, in, the, in the volumes, we want to go beyond this framework of Western esotericism um, to really look at the impact within Asia that mostly Asian actors, actually, Asian historical actors associated with theosophy wrought. Theosophy was used as a resource, was drawn upon by Asian modernizers, other historical actors, it opened up to them a possibility of opposition to the West because theosophy as esoteric was directed against the mainstream of Western culture. And although we're certainly not the first to point that out, I think we have a number of uh, new empirical contexts in which we can show this. Um, and so the volume overall, which uh, is actually a quite, quite substantial, how many pages do we have? Almost 500 pages. 
Um, actually, I think corroborates this kind of approach uh, empirically, I should say, for, for the first time uh, in, in this breadth uh, and depth. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been sort of researching theosophy for, for my work, and this is a really, uh, you know, incredibly useful, uh, both conceptually, but also, as you say, looks at the sort of global dimensions in a way that is quite uh, different, uh, at least uh, for me as well. So thank you for, for laying that out. Um, an important question uh, that comes up in several chapters is how theosophy relates to Western esotericism, occultism, and spiritualism. I believe both of you sort of Talk, uh, hinted at this already, but I was wondering if you could expand on this a little bit. Sure. I did mention that the Theosophical Society kind of grew out of a spiritualist context. Spiritualism in the sense not of the philosophical counterpoint to materialism, but a concrete set of movements, very heterogeneous, that emerged properly since the beginning of the 19th century and that aimed at establishing an empirical and scientifically demonstrable and provable contact to the other world, to the world of the departed, to souls of, of those who had died. There were many quarrels within that, whether it was really the souls of the departed that were contacted or if natural sources were at work. Uh, but of course, there, it was a very popular uh, movement that also had a lot of um, political and social implications. So it was a prominent thing in the 1870s. The theosophists coming from that background very soon wanted to distance themselves from that. And the hallmarks of that, of that viewpoint were the supposed need for initiation that I have mentioned, initiation into occult knowledge, into traditions that have to be understood and that could, could not just be put in the open and, and practice like spiritualism on the stage or in circles of supposed amateurs, but you really needed to be an adept to understand these, these doctrines, these teachings. And, and this relates to the notion of occultism, which had developed since the middle of the 19th century, first and, and most influentially in the writings of Eliphas Levy, who was a French socialist. His actual name was Alphonse-Louis Constant. So we have already a very reformist context where also Orientalist ideas played a, a crucial role because we are talking about a period where Orientalist scholarship was really being established as an academic set of disciplines. At the core of these ideas, uh, that were propagated by occultists was the idea of a true religion, a true religion that can be traced back to a specific origin, but that can only be understood understood by virtue of initiation. So, occultism, however, became what you could call a heterogeneous tangle of movements towards the end of the 19th century after Levy had died, and the Theosophical Society was instrumental in that. So we already have the spiritualist context and the theosophists come along and, and took that stance of occultism, the need for initiation, ancient knowledge, secret knowledge. Uh, at the same time, they were quite different from other self-referentially occultist groups and individuals at the time. Some listeners might have heard about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn or the Ordo Templi Orientis, quite famous occultist groups at the time who were very much focused on the practice of magic and related subjects and less formally, or they were, they were very formally hierarchically structured 
unlike the Theosophical Society, which was much more formless in its hierarchy. So the crucial point here is that we are talking about a very diverse and, and fluid field where we find many overlaps, rivalries, and, and changes constantly. We also can observe a counter-reaction to these on this, this increasing outlook towards, quote-unquote, the East. And that counter-reaction most prominently was the notion of Western esotericism. So we really have in the 1880s certain occultists, specifically from France, but something similar is also going on in the English-speaking world, who say, no, we don't want to have to do anything with that Buddhist and Hindu and Eastern stuff we want to focus on the true Western esoteric tradition, which is Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism and, and so on. So we have this notion of Western esotericism coming from there. And this is one reason why we need to interrogate this category, which today serves as the demarcation of a field of study, where much of the in-depth research on theosophy is produced. So another major aim of our volume is to transgress literally this demarcation and demonstrate the truly entangled history of esotericism within a global context, of which theosophy is really an outstanding example. Fascinating. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, this is a quick follow-up question, if that's okay. Um, I was just thinking, you mentioned Orientalism and the relationship between sort of uh, European Orientalist knowledge and uh, the Theosophical movement. Um, I was kind of curious if what you both thought about um, how, uh, and I know, Dr. Kramer, you've worked on the um, a little bit about the uh, emergence of the concept of religion uh, in Europe um, and its globalization. And I was wondering what role the Theosophical uh, Society or the Theosophical Movement plays in the emerging concept of uh, religion um, during this period? Yeah, it certainly uh, is present. And um, it's also interesting that you ask this question because um, I think its contribution to that story may have been overlooked for a longer time. Um, when uh, many scholars would just talk about the Protestant prototype of the concept of religion, you know, and look at whatever mainstream theology and missionaries, and people have not really been looking at this uh, very global, from almost the outset, very global movement of theosophy, and Yulin has already told us how, it, how they actually physically went to India, you know, and so on. So they've been, they've been actually quite a, a player in, in this story. Um, Although eventually, I guess, one, one could say, um, although this perhaps goes a bit, bit back to this mainstream uh, view, is that um, as other movements in the esoteric spectrum, uh, it kind of served to demarcate religion sort of to, to that side, right? To, to proper religion versus uh, then other groups that are sort of spiritual, whatever, but, but perhaps not in the narrow sense properly religious. Um, theosophy certainly came to end up there um, by perhaps the end of the, the 19th century. Um, and so, again, also in the, in the global story, um, it, it was uh, perhaps the most important representative of those groups that were not no longer, so to speak, uh, religion uh, for, for various reasons. Um, also because um, they, they rejected certain uh, modern uh, secularities, um, a proper division between proper division of labor between science on the one hand and then proper religion and the theosophists of course wanted to be sort of their own science 
um, it, 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 from the viewpoint of sort of the modern secularist uh, viewpoint of religion, it, it looked as if they would uh, sort of be in a, in a pre-modern mindset almost, right? That, that would be pre-scientific and therefore also needed to be rejected. So there's, it's actually quite a complex story here. Um, not sure, Julian, if you want to add to this portrayal. Well, perhaps a bit, because <laughs> this differentiation between religion and science is really at the core of many of, of the issues that we have to deal with uh, when we do research on theosophy. I think of Jürgen Osterhammel's statement, for instance, a very prominent global historian who identified theosophy as an expression of, I quote, irrationalism polemically counterposed to the Western's faith and reason, end of quote. So we have this classical dichotomy of Western rationality opposed to well, Eastern spirituality, mysticism, and so on, that really still structures much of the scholarship on, on, on the subject, even within global history, where there's usually a lot of awareness of how complicated such binaries are. But the theosophy or the theosophical society is so so fascinating because, as, as Martin pointed out, they wanted to create this, this synthesis. They wanted to unify those. And that was not something completely exotic and, and out there at the time, but really representative of broader and very prominent historical development. So it's important to, to emphasize that we are not talking about something completely out of touch with, with contemporary developments, but very much or that is very much an expression of those developments. And Orientalist scholarship is a great example of that. If you think of a scholar such as Friedrich Max Müller, then his goal was to establish this, this pure, to restore this, this pure religion. And he looked actually at the same sources, at the same context as, as the theosophists did. And he had some direct personal quarrels with them. There was an, an outright rivalry where Müller juxtaposed his own concept of theosophy to what the theosophic society was doing. And of course, he denounced them as uh, amateurs and dabblers. Uh, but if you look at the viewpoints very closely, you see that this polemic, these polemics really resulted from a proximity rather than a great distance. So when we look at theosophy, we look at very broad, prominent developments in the field of science, in the field of nationalism, in the field of religion, and also the emergence of a field like religious studies and also South Asian studies, because we're talking about the history of Orientalist scholarship. Fascinating. Thank you so much. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I think it might be useful for the listeners to hear about how you both think we should conceptualize the relationship between the theosophical society um, and the theosophical movement. Uh, we've you know, talked about both the society and the movement uh, so far. Um, what do some of the contributions to theosophy across boundaries say about the institution's relationship to the broader movement? It's always tricky to talk of a movement. And when people do that, they usually express that the thing we are talking about cannot really be grasped. And that is certainly the case for what might be called the theosophical movement as opposed to the society proper. So there were from, from the outset, as is the case in so many of those new movements, schisms and rivalries and splits. So very quickly, the whole thing 
fanned out and, and differentiated in, 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 in conflicting and sometimes cooperative, but a very diverse movement. So we have not one theosophical society, but a number of rivaling theosophical societies at some point. As well, we can identify very complicated and complex relationships with other contexts. So both within what you could summarize as esotericism and beyond contemporary, like, as I said, Orientalist scholarships, uh, nationalist movements, anti-colonial movements across the globe. So there were many parallel and often mercurial memberships. So people were theosophists, but they were also members of the Golden Dawn. And we have the, the, the very famous anthroposophical movement founded by Rudolf Steiner, who was a theosophist in the beginning and then dropped out and established his own product, so to speak, as a, a, a rivaling movement that is still very influential, particularly in Europe. So we have theosophy not only within the, the society when it comes to membership lists and lodges and so on, but we have a, a climate where a number of new religious movements emerged, where existing movements or, or currents were considerably influenced. And we have, that also bears noting, pretty much the historical basis for what later would be called New Age. So this is not simply over uh, uh, after the, the, the beginning of the 20th century. And I also mentioned that it was attractive to prominent scholars, not only Müller, but also a number of others that could be named. So we have this entanglement with the emerging academic study of religion, uh, the, the natural sciences, and the arts. In short, the Theosophical Society as an institutional structure was marked by many ruptures from the start and it might have lost much of its significance since the 1920s but its influence reaches far beyond the society itself and it can still be felt excellent thank you um, that really clarifies things um, now would it be accurate to describe the movement as being both elite and elitist um, you know, while the movement had several important women leaders, although not many from Asia, from what I can see, uh, and seems to embrace Asian intellectuals, it does seem to mostly consist of people of a high social status. Uh, I'm also wondering if theosophists thought that the supposed complexity of theosophical ideas were only available to those considered to be educated and intelligent. You've talked about the sort of initiation, and I'm wondering if there's sort of connections between the those who can be initiated uh, or the the possibility of being uh, properly initiated. Uh, I'm curious what you both think about uh, this impression and whether it's accurate or not. Right. I think the assessment is accurate, um, although, as you just uh, reminded us, um, some occultist movements that Julian also talked about with their think of secret societies with access only to the initiate were probably even more hierarchical um, and more exclusive uh, the Theosophical Society uh, was part of that context. And you actually see, if you look at the actual members uh, in Europe, uh, quite a few of them were actually even from the aristocracy, so from a really, really narrow social uh, stratum. And in Asia, uh, again, somewhat naturally, you have people who are uh, you know, globally uh, oriented, who, who can speak foreign languages. Those are the people that would become active members, prominent members of, of Theosophical Society. So it certainly is uh, an, an elite an elite stratum that we're talking about here. 
Uh, Julian, would you agree? I would. And we are dealing with a general problem when it comes to these reform movements or these 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 religious political movements at the time. We have access only to elite sources to begin with. And the way that theosophy was structured, uh, it, it, it attracted people who, to, to, well, to, from the very start, had to be able to read and write. So much of the communication of the propagation of theosophical ideas went through journals, very prominent and globally distributed journals, publications in, in the form of books and, and, and pamphlets and so on. So we, we are dealing with a literate culture here. However, you can tell that if you look at a context like Bengal, that on one hand, of course, the, the so-called Bhadralok, the, the educated, English-educated middle class was very much dominating theosophical circles and uh, usually also from the, the real elites of, of Calcutta, the, the Tagore family, for instance. But... If we look at the countryside and those many branches that developed in, within several decades, we do have people from village contexts. We do have a certain peasant presence, but it is very difficult to, to listen to their voices, to identify their voices, because they were not writing down their ideas and communicating them. But at the bottom line, the Theosophical Society was certainly an elitist movement, yes. Excellent. Thank you. Um, now, something I'm trying to think about myself is how we should characterize the relationship between theosophy and European imperialism, as well as anti-colonialism or anti-colonial nationalism. Um, the, the book demonstrates, to me at least, that there's no single or easy answer here. Um, it seems to depend on who and where we are talking about. Could you tell us about some of what some of the contributions to this book have to say about this issue? I know you've sort of hinted at this or discussed it a little bit already. Yeah, thanks for the great question. It is certainly one of the major themes in the book, or it was for us as editors of it, uh, to be sure. We already discussed this tension, I believe, in the introduction with uh, prominent cases of the two female leaders of the Theosophic Society, which uh, are rather contrasting cases. Uh, that is to say, uh, Blavatsky in the early period, uh, whose, outlook with, whose outlook was pretty much uh, Orientalist, and um, by and large dismissive of contemporary Asia and contemporary Asians, which uh, Europe would have something to teach, at the very least, before the move to India. And in quite some stark contrast, Annie Besant, whose political involvement uh, also in and for Asia reached all the way to her leadership of the Indian National Congress in 1917. So um, the, the politics, anti-imperialist politics, anti-colonial politics really... Uh, took center stage at one point um, in the theosophical movement, in the theosophical society um, then in the 1910s, 1920s. So um, a number of contributions in the volume, uh, those, for example, on China, Vietnam, and Japan, and I should perhaps point out for those who haven't read the book that uh, we do have a number of quite exciting country cases, uh, studies of local contexts of theosophy that haven't been haven't received much attention so far in scholarship. Um, and what, what those contributions show is how theosophy was indeed used by anti-colonial forces there. I mean, talking about elites again here mostly, um, but um, 
elites that were um, working for uh, anti-colonial liberation, anti-imperialism, um, and theosophy was one of the resources, as I earlier put it, one of the resources they used. Um, and so, again, one of the one of the the, the tricks sort of we we try to employ in the book is we don't take theosophy head on so much, uh, or at least not in all contributions. But we have many cases where theosophy is sort of one important factor in, in a different story. And uh, since it, it's not the main factor, it hasn't received the attention uh, either, be it either in, in sort of theosophy-focused uh, studies or in, in sort of more mainstream studies. So we're trying to kind of reestablish the factor, as it were, not exaggerating it and not saying this is the one decisive factor, but these, especially these people in the China, Vietnam, and Japan cases, they, among many other things, they, they do, they, they, they draw upon, there is theosophy, and it's quite significant. Um, and it, it, uh, for them, it's a, it's a good combination with their anti-colonial agenda. Um, and it's also interesting to see that we're talking here uh, about both Asians in Asia and actually also Europeans who come to Asia and are sympathetic to Asian causes and then collaborate there. Um, and perhaps the most interesting contribution in this respect, um, the question of European imperialism and anti-colonialism we have is the chapter by, by uh, Perry Myers. Let me uh, look up the title here quickly, uh, which is entitled Affinity and Estrangement, Transnational Theosophy in Germany and India during the Colonial Era, 1878 to 1933. Um, and the, the complex picture Myers paints is that he shows that uh, despite many commonalities um, <clears throat> and shared goals, German theosophists stressed spirituality in, in a way that made their movement ultimately apolitical, while Indian theosophists saw the overthrow of British rule as their foremost goal. And uh, basically, uh, spirit, spirituality uh, was, was uh, secondary to that or interpreted differently. So politically, they were actually quite at odds, um, despite sort of being members of the same society with the same goals. Um, and in, in a similar way, the, the German theosophists um, saw India as basically an idealized ancient India, while the Indian theosophists uh, thought about India as something to reform, uh, to, to politically also reform and, and renovate and renew and so both were talking about India as something positive, but it's basically two different Indias. Um, and uh, the, the German theosophists really didn't see the need to uh, do anything about it politically so much. And they also come, if you look at sort of the, the political context they come from, the people that they associate with politically in the domestic context, you can see that it's more, uh, as I said, previous aristocracy, um, socially conservative partially. So it's quite, quite a different context. Here and this also is um, then important for the for the uh, question of anti-colonialism and imperialism. Mm. Fascinating, thank you. And, and you've already mentioned sort of the India and the importance of India um, a little bit here. But I was wondering if you could expand on uh, why India and Indian religions like Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism seem to loom so large in theosophical discourse. Yeah, we did already address this aspect of ancient so-called Aryan wisdom, which built upon Orientalist scholarship, but also on a set of what might be called ancient wisdom narratives that have been popular 
in different contexts basically since antiquity. The idea that Platonism, Pythagoreanism, and other renowned Greek teachings were basically rooted in a place like Egypt as a locus of initiation or transmitted through the so-called Magi, the Persian mages from the East, that eventually can be re related to so-called gymnosophists or Brahmins as the, the ultimate source of that wisdom. The idea of, of wisdom from the East, in short, was very popular in those circles where theosophy emerged, but also in Orientalist scholarship and scholarship generally, broadly speaking. Since the 18th century, European Orientalists, other scholars, began engaging with the sources and, and actual loci. For instance, through Anquity de Florence, Latin translation of the Persian rendering of the Upanishads, which he did with the help of Indian Parsis. That's a pretty prominent example. It was on the basis of, of such exchanges and, and broader historical developments, which were tied into colonialism, that the notion of esotericism emerged and developed. And here we have this hugely ambiguous racial aspect, perhaps also picking up a bit from your previous question. Since these racial dynamics within colonialism are hugely ambiguous, and there will actually be, uh, for those who might be interested, within the next coming months in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, a, a roundtable, a published roundtable, where I discuss this theosophical race aspect. So when, when it comes to questions of, of scholarship, we have, broadly speaking, two angles that dominate the perspective, uh, perspectives on theosophy within scholarship. That is, on one hand, Western esotericism. Uh, Martin has already discussed the, the issues with that. So within that context, we have a very strong focus on Western actors, obviously, and, and particularly white male actors. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, we have certain post-colonial approaches. Uh, Gauri Vishwanathan is a prominent example who focused on the racial dynamics, the colonial dynamics within theosophy. But I would say that on one hand, she points out extremely important aspects that every historian of, of theosophy should be wary about, namely that there is a reproduction of colonial power structures, of racial hierarchies, etc., within theosophy. But on the other hand, we have a, an exceptional agency of, to, to limit the discussion to India, of, of people from India who, through theosophy, can not only on a very practical basis engage with anti-colonial agendas, but also have like a, a, a line, lines of communication to the literal world through theosophical publications, etc. And this is where the notion of Aryan becomes so interesting, because it carries all the baggage of Orientalism, racism, and so on to the maximum degree. Yet at the same time, this, this focus on the wisdom from the East, guarded by the heirs of Aryan civilization, opened up uh, a certain strategy to, to assert authority within the theosophical society. Uh, discourse. So we have very clear sources explicitly stating 
that the big difference between theosophists and orientalists, colonial administrators, merchants, and so on, missionaries, of course, uh, and, 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 and the theosophists is that the theosophists came to learn and not to teach. Of course, reality was much more complicated. The theosophists did assert authority and there were racial uh, dynamics, but this, this notion of race and Aryan really illustrates how ambiguous it is and how important it is to really contextualize and historicize these sources. And this leads me to this relevance of Indian doctrines, quote unquote. And Advaita Vedanta is widely considered at the time to contain the purest and most developed core of Aryan religion, which relates to the perception or the reception of the Upanishads, of course, and which was taken up by prominent scholars, just to name Müller again as an example. But there was also a contemporary enthusiasm for Buddhism, think of Schopenhauer, so there was, in fact, a, a quarrel among theosophists and their interlocutors about whether Buddhism or Hinduism, quote unquote, contained the purest essence of truth. So this is insanely difficult and ambiguous and complex, and a lot more research has to be done on that mm -hmm. in order to understand it better. Fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, that really helps. And um, sort of staying with, uh, you know, the sort of Aryan Semitic sort of binary, I guess, uh, in a way that we could think about, um, and the sort of ambiguous racial dynamics. Uh, my next question uh, sort of looks at that as well, but maybe away from South Asia a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your editor volume was the discussion on not only how Judaism and Kabbalah uh, featured in theosophical thinking, but also how some Jewish theosophists understood the relationship between their religion and theosophy. Um, I was wondering if you could talk uh, about this a little bit, um, because it's not something that I think most people would be familiar with. Now that we have talked so much about Aryan in, in the 19th century, this, of course, raises a lot of red flags when it comes to the role of, of Jews in, in the Theosophical Society and, and Jewish interlocutors of, of, of theosophists. Mm -hmm. We have this contemporary juxtaposition of so-called Aryan and so-called Semitic traditions and related to them races and languages and religions. We do have, of course, these racially connoted ideas in the Turkish sense, but we also have contemporary scholarship differentiating between Aryan and Semitic languages and religion. And the theosophists are in the tangle of all that. This is where a lot of the ambiguity comes from. So since the focus very much the theosophical focus very much rested on the supposed Aryan civilization, those considered Semitic found themselves in a somewhat ambiguous position. Even if we are not talking about outright open anti-Semitism, which also existed within theosophy. At the same time, Kabbalah, or what people understood under that, which really could vary quite drastically. Kabbalah was viewed as a hallmark of, of esotericism, beginning, no, not beginning, but prominently represented by Eliphas Levi, who I mentioned as this uh, central figure of occultism. That mirrored widespread notions about, quote-unquote, Kabbalah as linked to Gnosticism, ancient Gnosticism, 
magic Neoplatonism and the supposed ancient Eastern and more specifically Indian root of all that. Such views were expressed by contemporary Oriental scholarship and not only within contexts that might be considered esoteric. The notion of Kabbalah then was hotly contested and, well, quote-unquote actual Jews, not only people who Eliphas Levi, by the way, just took on a, a pseudo-Hebraic name and identified with Kabbalah, but actual Jews were thus put in a particularly ambivalent place. That led to many tensions among Jewish theosophists and their their, their conversation partners, which Boaz Hus chapter in our volume impressively illustrates. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I thought there was some, uh, being familiar more with the sort of um, relationship or the sort of complicated relationship between theosophy and Sufism, um, you know, I, I thought there was sort of interesting parallels between that and, and Judaism and Kambalah and theosophy. So thank you so much. That was a really fascinating chapter. Um, so finally, before we end the discussion, I was wondering if uh, you could talk about what role theosophy plays in the history of Pan-Asianism. This is something several chapters in part two of the volume look at, including yours, Dr. Kramer, on Paul Richard. Yes, I'd be very happy to talk about that, obviously. You see, um, because I think it actually shows um, one of the beautiful aspects of this volume is um, that it, it frequently uh, shows how you can find new things sort of on, on both sides of the equation. If we look at the role of theosophy in Pan-Asianism, we find out something new about theosophy and something new about Pan-Asianism, I believe. Let me, let me try to explain this to you um, and first talk about theosophy. The, the second part of the volume uh, chapters 8 through 13 is entitled Theosophy in Literature, the Arts and Politics. And I've, as I've sort of mentioned earlier, um, this is mainly where we look at, at stories where theosophy is not central um, and, and has indeed partially been overlooked sort of within these stories and stories that have also not been part of the sort of mainstream story of theosophy. And uh, I think we can show this very well uh, in, in many uh, regional contexts here, Japan, Russia, uh, Bali, um, and also some uh, uh, aspects such as art and architecture. Um, although especially art has recently uh, become a bit more prominent within the study of theosophy uh, through the, the project at Columbia University. Um, so, um, so this is, um, uh, for example, as, as Lawrence Cox and Alicia Turner in, her, in their, their chapter on the Mahabodhi Society um, and uh, Arakan, uh, show um, they, basically none of the crucial actors is a card-carrying theosophist, um, but theosophy gives those people, and it's mostly uh, uh, Bur Burmese uh, actors, Burmese Buddhists, it gives them a model for a global religious organization that they sort of that that, that kind of model simply hadn't been there. The, the idea that that you can organize yourself in this way hadn't been there. But uh, it, it borns, as they say, it, it, it leads to the emergence of other similar associations, such as the Mahabodhi Society. Um, so uh, the, the whole story is kind of difficult to, to, uh, to see, to understand without the existence of theosophy somewhere along the way as an inspiration. And it also shows, the whole, that chapter also shows um, how Asian actors, again, used the Mahabodhi Society in that case, but also theosophy as a resource for their own goals, uh, this and in this case, the revival of, of Buddhism in Arakan, Burma. 
Um, in my own chapter, uh, where Panasianism is more central, uh, again, I have, I have a protagonist, uh, quite a, a little known person, uh, Paul Richard, who was uh, a bit famous in his own time, 1910s, 1920s, but it's entirely forgotten today. Um, he is uh, a, a very important um, node in a network of Pan-Asianists um, centered in Japan, uh, sort of a European spokesperson for the demise of Europe, an authentic spokesperson um, who, who uh, talks about uh, how, uh, the, the, how excellent Asia is in contrast to the de degenerate Europe. Um, and he, again, is not a theosophist, uh, has never been one, but uh, he's gone through a number of uh, spirit, occultist, spiritualist, esoteric associations, um, and he ends up in India. And I think the, the, uh, the, the, the reason why he goes to India is theosophy. Um, I think he originally intends to go to Adyar and meet uh, theosophical leaders, which I, I think he never does. It's not entirely clear. He ends up um, then uh, working together with Odobindo Ghosh in Pondicherry, um, uh, which is sort of a bit opposed to, to Adyar in many ways. Um, but his original intention, I think, sort of the, the, the move to, towards Asia, towards India, was widely, was deeply inspired by theosophy, um, uh, which, although he then finds other <laughs> offerings in Asia, uh, in South, South Asia and South India in Japan, um, so another interesting case where, where a, a whole story is almost unthinkable without the presence of theosophy, although uh, theosophy proper doesn't really feature in this story. Now, as for Pan-Asianism, uh, Pan-Asianism has been portrayed, uh, again, a movement that was very influential in a certain time for two or three decades, but has been discounted uh, since then uh, and has only been rediscovered as really an, an important historical factor in the last 10 or 15 years. But it's been mostly portrayed as a, as a political movement. It's been associated with, with left-wing uh, left politics in Europe, um, anti-colonial liberation. Um, and what's been uh, largely overlooked is the other associations uh, that in their time were, were no less influential of Pan-Asianists, and those were with, with very deeply spiritualist circles, uh, the, the whole spiritual or religious connection, the idea that what actually unified Asia first and foremost was religion or something religious, perhaps spiritual, that uh, hasn't been uh, taken seriously enough, I, I should say, in, in scholarship because people have thought of this as a political movement and perhaps these, these justifications uh, seem somewhat embarrassing viewed from today because <laughs> um, they, they, they appear so flimsy, right? Um, but I think they were very important to people at the time. Uh, they, were, they were taken much more seriously. And uh, people like uh, the protagonist of my chapter, Paul Richard, uh, played this card. Uh, he, he, was, um, he, he was not politically uh, so much a, a socialist, uh, but um, politically more ambiguous, I guess you could say, but very clear on the, on the anti-imperialist side and his, his spiritual agenda, his quasi-religious spiritual agenda. Again, as I said, uh, influenced by, by theosophy. So it, it shows us a new aspect of Pan-Asianism. Looking at theosophy shows us a new aspect of Pan-Asianism, despite the fact that probably no single Pan-Asianist leader ever was an, an actual member of a theosophical society. I think you can find several chapters like that in the volume that show these kind of surprising connections.
Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I really found, uh, you know, your work on Pan-Asianism as well as the other ones really fascinating because as you say, it seems like the, um, I was actually just a, just a quick follow-up. Do you think the, one of the reasons for why Pan-Asianism is, uh, uh, the spiritual aspects or the religious aspects are not taken seriously is because Pan-Asianism is reduced to Japanese imperial instrumentalization of Pan-Asianist discourse uh, or movement. Yes, that is certainly true for the older stratum of research on Pan-Asianism. Um, before the rediscovery that I talked about, it was reduced very simplistically to just the, the latest stage of the, where it was indeed a tool of Japanese imperialism, without doubt, in the 1930s and during World War II. But uh, even in that rediscovery where people have found that, in fact, before this period, Pan-Asianism was already an important political factor but uh, with quite different connotations, it was within Japan rather uh, oppositional um, because the, the, uh, the, the treaties, the, the Anglo-Japanese Friendship Treaty, 1902, were had to be much more important by the Japanese elites than, than any, any affinities with the Asian neighbors. Actually, uh, Pan-Asianism was quite oppositional and not mainstream. But even, even that research, which has sort of unearthed this this pre-1930s legacy, it's seen as a, as a quite purely political movement. The, the, there's a, what one might call a methodological secularism in this scholarship, which, which looks at political movements and disavows sort of any religious or spiritual uh, element. Or as I previously said, it, it kind of looks embarrassing. You don't really you, you want to see this as something, as something that, that was worthwhile, was directed towards the, the, the political liberation of the imperialistically oppressed people, and you don't want this, this strange esoteric spiritualism to, to play a role in this. Um, and on the other hand, in, in religious studies scholarship, um, again, the, the, these, these movements have also seen, been seen as overtly political and thus not really worthy of, of investigation. So they've sort of slipped off the radar. And the, the combination, which is very potent at, a, at this time, fairly short window of time perhaps, uh, 1910s and 1920s, that, the, the combination that has, has been overlooked mostly. Great. Thank you so much uh, to both of you uh, for, for everything. Um, so I've taken so much of you know, both of yours time. Uh, but before I let you leave, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now or uh, what might be upcoming. I believe, Dr. Strube, you've already mentioned a little bit, but please expand on uh, what we can expect uh, to be coming out from, uh, from both of you. And your book, it uh, will probably come out in February. I'm very happy about that. It's the result of uh, last year's work, basically. It's, it's titled Global Tantra, Religion, Science, and Nationalism in Colonial Modernity. It's coming out with Oxford. And Theosophy does feature quite prominently in it, but my main focus rests on local developments in Bengal and the manifold global connections that shape those developments, which really on one hand highlights the importance of looking at those local contexts. Global history is often understood to be about these macro perspectives, grand narratives, but I, I'm really advocating for the combination of those perspectives and a, a micro study of local developments. So in that sense, I investigate the role and meaning of Tantra, 
diachronically within the context of Bengal. And I, I go back to the 18th century, basically also to the 16th, but specifically to the 18th, which on the other hand highlights the importance of venturing beyond the British colonial context and the 19th century in order those in order to understand those developments. I also do research on exchanges between learned Bengalis, Unitarians, and transcendentalists and other reformers, and basically from the same perspective. So I, I really stress that it's important to consider pre-colonial and local developments and dynamics between South Asian religious, social and political developments, including what may be summarized as Islam and, and Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Great. That sounds fascinating. I would love to read that when it's out. And uh, Dr. Kramer? Yeah, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't offer a new book, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been working the past three or four years now, and a couple of articles about this uh, have been coming out and will be coming out on, the, on a, a fresh look at the reception of Japanese Buddhism in the West. Um, and this seems like a fairly straightforward story. If you think about the, the, the success story of, of Zen Buddhism, uh, D.T. Suzuki uh, introducing central tenets, his understanding of, of Zen uh, leading to this incredible boom, certainly today in the post-war period and even in the pre-war period. You can already see how D.T. Suzuki understandings of Zen become shaped global understandings of Japanese Buddhism, both in the academy and beyond. But if you if you look more closely, you'll find that there's actually an earlier stratum of this. Um, the, 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 the Zen boom stories basically can be traced back to the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893, when uh, D.T. Suzuki's teacher, Shak Soen, introduced Japanese Zen Buddhism, uh, so, if you will, for the first time for a global stage. But there was actually a reception of, of different schools of Japanese Buddhism since the 1870s um, in Europe, uh, not in North America. In, uh, you have a Pure Land uh, Buddhists, Japanese Pure Land Buddhist priests travel to Europe. They publish in English and French uh, quite a lot. And this is taken to be the voice of Japanese Buddhism, the authoritative voice of Japanese Buddhism in those decades, uh, actually reaching into the 20th century. And you'll find a quite different portrayal than you might expect from sort of today's Zen color view uh, in those years, uh, leading up to, uh, you know, manuals, uh, introductory manuals to religious studies. They all cite these, these Pure Land writings, uh, and you'll find uh, quite a different portrayal of Japanese Buddhism and a non-Zen portrayal uh, in the academic sphere, certainly, and partially also in, in the popular sphere and towards the end of the 19th century. So that's what I'm trying to look at in more in more greater detail. Fascinating. That sounds amazing as well. I would love to read that uh, when it's out. Hopefully one day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, 